Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. In, uh, in February of this year, I was in Qatar. For those of you who don't know, Qatar is part of that Middle East, a kind of emirate Middle East. It's a country where uh, there'll be World Cup soccer sometime soon or something. And uh, Doha is charging at the moment to ready herself for this great global uh, moment. I visited a church there, which was the first time I'd been, although I'd heard much of her. And it was enormous fun as I walked into what looked like an ordinary house But the couple who lead the church took me through the story of how this little group, this motley crew of men and women gathered in the lounge for the first time in this little house, and how it grew so they had to pull some walls down, and then it grew some more, and so they had to splash out onto the patio, and then they got permission from the owner because expats can't own property, and so what they did is they had to get permission to close in the patio, eventually close in the whole back garden, And you have to stand, kind of X marks the spot, not for reasons of camera, but for reasons of visibility, because it's a motley group, a room of visual diversity. And how it moved from one language to two language services to three to four to five, how it has Mandarin, Arabic, English, Hindi, and another one I can't remember. But it's a bit like the tumbleweed of the book of Acts, because Men and women come into Qatar, like many of the expat communities, with a desire to make a dollar. That's why they're there, really, originally. But how God extraordinarily finds moments to engage people in a greater story with a greater reward called eternity. And it's amazing how many have stepped into this very eclectic little building, very raw, very gutsy, quite unrefined, and have discovered their faith. I think when I was here last time, I told you about the Nepalese street sweeper who came to faith, stumbled into the church, stumbled into this community of love. He didn't know of the name of Jesus. He had never heard of Christ nor the church, had heard because of the incredible disorientation, cultural disorientation of finding yourself in a city, the language you don't speak, Your wife and your family are back in a village in the mountains of Nepal somewhere. And he stumbled into this looking for community more than anything else to satisfy the deep, lonely hunger of his heart, not knowing he would find a Savior worth living for. And the time came when he came to faith and he went to the leaders and he said, my village does not know of this Jesus, but it's going to cost me to go home. What, are they, what, what, what do you mean, they said? Well, actually, he said, I'm here illegally now. My visa has expired. If I go to the authorities and hand myself in, I will go to prison, which he did. He went to prison. They released him, sent him home to Nepal, and it was but a few weeks later that he 
got word back to the church in Qatar, in, in Doha, and he said, my, my family have come to faith, my village has come to faith, can you come and help me? A few months later, he got back word one more time saying, it's not just my village that's come to faith, it's now the villages around, can you come and help me? The tumbleweed effect of the book of Acts in our modern world, when men and women get grabbed by the gospel, the gospel grips their soul, and they cannot but share it. So this time, this time I'm there and they tell me this story. A man walks into the gathering, walks into the community. Through a series of remarkable love, affection, and gospel empowerment, he too meets the Jesus he did not know exist. His mother was Greek, I believe it's this way, and his father was Syrian. He speaks English, he speaks Greek, and he speaks Arabic. His contract comes to an end. He has to go home. So he goes home to Greece, not expecting the tumbleweed effect of the gospel. We're not talking about an evangelist or a preacher or a church planter. We're talking about an ordinary man who came to Doha to make money, but who leaves redeemed, washed with the blood of Christ with the, the clearest sense of mission. It was but a few weeks later, Rob gets the phone call from his new convert to say, you need to help me. Why, says Rob? Well, what's happened, we have 200,000 Syrian refugees who are now in Greece. They are culturally disorientated, and they are fundamentally uh, confused and in, in a state of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Displeasure, in disbelief, because Allah did not look after them. They've lost everything. They cannot go home. They are displaced, looking for a Greek Arab speaker. They find our friend. He leads one to the Lord, two to the Lord, three to the Lord, five to the Lord, 10 to the Lord, 20 to the Lord. He sends the phone call saying, can someone help? We have got more believers, brand new Muslim converted believers who have found the Yeshua, the Jesus that they never knew existed. Can someone come and help with these new converts? You know, folks, I tell those stories partly because they build faith, and yes, they do. But partly because tonight I want to hone in. We preachers really have one message each. We shape it in different forms. But like, we like a chef with a preference for curry. Or we like the French panage, the French flair. But those stories move me for two primary reasons. One is the, the amazing wonder of redemption. Please never get anesthetized to what happened on Easter Friday, please. Please never allow your mind to splash quickly from the cross to Easter eggs. From the amazement of a tortured, butchered, bludgeoned Christ to Friday lunch. It is of great worth for us to pause for a moment and to understand that what Jesus went through covers every single one of our hurts, our pains, our ailments. Please understand that. You take any story, and I did that recently because like you, I've been faith for a long time. I was a cultural South African Christian until Jesus met with me as a university student. 
And all the years later, preaching for close on, at that point in time, 27, 28 years, I realized that I'd lost the power, wonder, and amazement and the mystery of exactly what transpired. What was the interaction? What was the transaction of the cross? And I slowly but surely took all the gospel accounts and every account that I could, I went and read up historically what the cross meant. And I realized so much of my Easter Friday image was Hollywood-based, was children's picture book-based. For example, when, when I read that they used to crucify people at eye height, we have this notion that he was put up there on a, on a 25-foot cross that everyone could see, just like Rio de Janeiro. But they never crucified him out of touch with humanity. Their intentional nature of the Caesar execution was to intimidate the local population in such a way that men and women could walk past, slap the person on the cross, spit in their face, punch them, abuse them any which way they could. It was meant to humiliate to the ultimate degree in the final hour. There wasn't a nice little, little chain around it, please don't come close. There wasn't a don't touch. It was meant to humiliate until your final breath gave way to eternity. It wasn't a pretty little, little kind of daisy-like throne crown that was gently and pleasantly placed on his head. It was wedged down and into, like barbed wire, the strongest of thorns that descended with pressure onto his head, that it dug into his head so that they could mock him who thought he was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if that was not mesmerizing enough, God did it to his son. Or at least allowed it to happen to his son. The revelation we have of Easter Friday will have a direct correlation to the probability that we will share the love of Christ with men and women who don't know them. If we have an Easter egg Easter Friday, we will not share the love of Christ with people. But when we are held captive by the trauma and the butchery that transpired on that day, we will seek every and any opportunity to tell. In the 1970s in Argentina, Those who were resistant to the authorities disappeared. But even though they were intimidated, the family members would never let their memory die. And Sting popularized it globally when he sang that song, Dancing with the Missing, Dancing with the Dead. Because what the mothers and fathers and the brothers and sisters of those who went missing did is they would come into a public square with the name of their beloved one and dance because they weren't allowed to stationary protest. And so they would quietly dance with tears and weeping the missing son, brother, father who disappeared in offense against General Pinotay, I think it was. Now, if that is true of our natural biological family, how much greater is the truth of a Jesus who died for us so that we need not experience the trauma, the weight, and eternal damnation 
that was our portion. It's a story worth telling. But folk, not only is that the component of the gospel, and that's not my objective tonight, but the objective of the gospel is that God also restores us back to original intent. Take, if you wish, a silly example of, of an old motorbike. I happened to see it fleetingly on the TV last night of the guy who races vintage motorcycles. And he, with great love and care, puts these motorcycles together, 1954, 1958, and with incredible love and shining, and has a whole team to rebuild this motorcycle. And speaks with great joy and boldness about what this motorcycle looked back in the day. And now he rides it with a sense of pomp and circumstance as everyone else oohs and ahs because of divine intent, original intent. And one of the things I love about this gospel, dear friends, is that God through the gospel puts us back. He restores us to original intent in beauty, in affection, in emotion, I'm a passionate man, and it intrigues me how the man who puts war paint on his face to go and watch a footy game cannot walk hand in hand with his wife on the beach with tenderness and affection. Where has the gospel so impacted your marriage and your heart for the woman who has given her life for you? Don't tell me, sir, I'm not one of those men. Is that what God did when he created Adam? A distant, disengaged, unemotional man? Or did he create one who had the full freedom of emotion and love and passion exuded towards the woman who has given her life to him? Redemption is glorious, but so is restoration. And if there is a message amongst others that burns in my heart, it is to get men and women, boys and girls, reassigned to their divine mission. I was telling the men yesterday of my brother. My brother put up his hand with me preaching as an 18-year-old boy, schoolboy, college, university. And the place erupted as I finished preaching and he put up his hand and he ran to the front and he held me and he hugged me, tears and responded to the gospel called redemption, but got home and had buyer's remorse. Said, what have I done? What have I done? What an idiot have I been? And he returned to these old ways, dope smoking, drinking. He was a very good rugby player, played for the Sharks, got married, had an affair, and ran. And ran and ran and ran and ran. 20 years later, at the age of 38, I'm in Los Angeles, and my brother calls me. He says to me, Chris, it's me, Hendon. I say, but great to hear from you. I don't, didn't hear much from him at that stage. He said, I wanted you to know I've come back to the God I've run away from. That was powerful, redemption. But then he said this, I have wasted 20 years of my life, and I cannot have them back. but I want God to put me on the mission, the reason I'm on this planet. And dear friends, as delighted as I was for redemption, I was equally stirred for restoration. He wanted to rediscover his mission. Glenridge, when we planted Glenridge, my passion was to empty the church every five years. 
That's why I love those expat communities. They're not men and women who are coming in to put up white picket fences and to live pleasant, comfortable Christian lives. Kids go to nice schools. Live in, none, there's nothing wrong with all of those. My kids have gone to nice schools. But the object of their affection is to arrive in these expat contexts and to find themselves making loads and loads of moolah. But God has an agenda for them there. And so we planted that church, and, and my passion was to see every man and woman discover the mission why they are on this planet. And dear friends, I hear many pulpits, and I say this with tenderness, preaching about how you must discover your vision for your life. What is your vision? What are your goals? And I'm so intrigued because God never asks that question. The question God asks, are you on the mission that I have given you? Jeremiah chapter 1, you'll hear me quoted all the time. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb. God took a mission. He found a womb to put that mission in. He robed the mission in a body. He chose that mother and father to produce that child, that mission, at that time into that family. And again, with a broken heart, can I say to you, sir, do you honestly think God did not know which womb you would come out of? Oh, you don't know my mom. I do not. You don't know my dad. I do not. But I know who formed you in your mother's womb. I knew which mission God put in there, and he wrapped it with you. With your eyes, your ears, your body. He wrapped that mission with you, and it was everything you need plus grace and faith to achieve that mission. And folks, when we don't grasp that, what happens is even Christians spend their lives butterflying from one idea to the next, one moment to the next, one job to the next. Oh, you should read my boss. He says after his fifth resignation, hang on, time out. Are you on job satisfaction or are you on mission? Choose. Mother Teresa heard one word from God ever. So her biography goes. God spoke to her once and he said, will you go, and I'm not quoting it exactly, but will you go to Calcutta to love the people no one else loves? And she said, yes. And her biography says she never heard another word from God. And she spent the next 50 years of her life loving people no one else wants to live. And you say, Mother Teresa, how could you do that? It's one word, mission. One word, mission. When we understand that, we understand that our spiritual journey is a boot camp of dual readiness. One hand, I'm doing right now what God has for me. The other part of the knife is I'm being readied for another assignment. I'm passionate, fully obedient, fully engaged in the assignment God has for me right now. But there is another assignment down the road that God has for me. Sitting in a old Mercedes many years ago, I was probably about 28, 29-year-old young pastor, and Cedric sat next to me. He said to me, Chris, I've just been offered a job. And he said, I'm absolutely unqualified for that job. He had a master's degree, but it was still unqualified for the job. 
I said, tell me what the job is. He explained the job to me. He said this. He said, Chris, if your vision does not frighten you, it's not from God. Because God always takes the mission, wraps it in you, adds faith and grace to it, and we live a life beyond ourselves. You know why I'm tender about these things? And I suppose it's the end of a long trip. I've had two international trips back and back, and I'm probably a little bit weary. But there is another piece to it. Because as I stand here before you, I'm very aware that I'm a little Afrikaans boy, barefoot on the farm, who put his hand up as an 18-year-old and said, Jesus, I'm on your mission. Whatever you want to do, wherever you want to do, I'm in. Nothing special. English isn't even my first language. But when we put our hands up and we say, yes, God, to redemption and yes, God, to restoration, watch the mission adventure that God has for you. You cannot live, dear friends, in the surrogate mission of a community. Many people get caught up in the slipstream of the community, and it's great, believe me. You want, I, I love it, I love the local church of this. I'm not demeaning that for one millisecond, but we live in that slipstream, sucked along by it all the time. But there will come a moment when the boat turns left, I keep going straight, and I end up blub, 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 and I'm in the water, and I wonder why. And the why is I've never had my own mission, I've only been dragged along by the mission of the community. There is that wonder of saying, God, I am fully in mission with this community of victory. And as I said earlier on, what a great mission. But I'm also fully in personal mission, and it's God who double-deckers my bus and allows me to do both. My mission fully described and defined within the mission of the community. Would you grab your Bibles, please? I want us to go to the scriptures, and I want to take us to the life of Joseph. I won't be much longer, but I hope with moments like this that we will find ourselves in the right conversations. And can I prayerfully say, even if it keeps you up tonight, it's a conversation worth having. This is not a conversation about the kind of job, kind of car, the size of the house, my bank balance. This is not a, those are the consequences of mission, not the cause of them. When I'm in mission, I'm in the sweet spot of God. I'm in the purple patch of the person and the presence of God in my life, no matter what it looks like. I sat with a church planter in New York a young South African couple who arrived there with the kid and $200 in their pocket. And about five years later, I used to meet with them regularly. And the church plant was not going well. We made mistakes that we didn't know or understand. And with tears, Meryl and I pleaded with Derek and Kath, and we said, please, can we pull you out of New York? It's killing the two of you. And they sat with tears in their eyes saying, but where can we go? What can we do? We have nothing else. This is the mission God has called us to, and until He releases us, we have nowhere to go. We have nothing else to do. 
If I did not know better, I would have offered them something on the West Coast. I would say, we'll pay for an apartment. We'll pay for a car. We'll give you a salary. But how could I seduce people with stuff when they believed they were in the center of the will of God and tears was not an indication of the absence of blessing? I was in a particular city some years ago, and uh, a prophet walked up to me. People don't generally prophesy over me. I'm always envious of those who kind of have prophesy on their forehead, you know. You'll have a crowd like this, and they'll be pulled out, and I'm like always, is that me? Is that me? And they always go around me. But this occasion, this prophet walks up to me, and he says, I have a prophetic word for you. I trust him, know the man, love him. Uh, He said, would you mind taking your belt off, which I did, and um, he said, I want you to stand like this with your hands on your sides, which I did. And he put the belt around me, stood behind me, and held the belt like this behind me. And he said, I want you to lean forward, which I did. And then he let the one side go, and I stumbled forward. And he said to me, that will happen to the man who owns this belt. And I want you to read this text, which I'm going to read to you now. Because I want to just simply put you in the conversation of being readied for mission. That's it. Being readied for mission. At Psalm 105, it's an account of Joseph. It's more of a historian looking back at the story of Moses, uh, of Joseph, rather than the Genesis account of him. While Meryl and I were on sabbatical in December and January, I felt God really arrest me. And so I don't want you to do your normal devotions. I don't want you to do your normal reading. I just want you to study the life of Joseph. So I'm busy writing a book called My Joseph Story. And this is just a part of that eye-opening understanding as it unfolded. We are men and women on mission. Our life makes most sense when we do mission. My marriage makes most sense when I know God has put me with Meryl, Diane, Nankervis. He didn't first say, do you love her? He first said, love her. Then he said, you're on mission together. So the notion for me, and I say this with tenderness to those of you who are divorced or separated, please hear me, is that we've never had the divorce conversation because I cannot do my life and my mission without my mission partner. I'm so grateful she's beautiful. I'm so grateful I love her. But those are the lenses that made the mission appealing. Joseph, this is what Psalm 105 reads. We'll pick up in verse 16. When he summoned, when he, God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. When God summoned a famine and when God broke all supply of bread, he sent a man. There it is. A mission. He sent a man. The New Testament vocabulary is apostolos, the sent one. God created a famine. God broke the bread supply and he sent a man. He sent a man ahead of them Joseph, who was sold as a slave, 
His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until, 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 you can underline until, until what he said had come to pass, until the word of the Lord tested him. Then the king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Let me just gallop through this a little bit, folks, without losing the thrust of what I think God wants to do. When we read the front end of this text, it reads interestingly. He summoned a famine. God created an ecological scenario because he wanted a man in Egypt. God is sovereign, and God will do whatever is necessary to get his man or his woman where he wants to. And sometimes he will dry up the sense of his presence. He will do it. See, we don't understand these things, folks, because we feel we should always feel good and, and, and always be kind of bouncing around. But sometimes God, in his greater wisdom and knowledge for purposes of mission, will summon a famine. When you go through times of famine, when it seems like the life and the power and the presence of God is drying up, we can't always rebuke the devil for what God is doing. It's God capturing our attention for reasons of mission. He summoned a famine. He dried up the wells. The rivers weren't flowing. Everyone else is da 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 da. Everyone else is, and you're like, you are kidding me. Does, doesn't everyone know what's happening to me? No, sir, they don't because they are not there yet, but they will be there next week. Ern Baxter tells the story of the eagle. How many of you heard the great Ern Baxter eagle message? Of the eagle who lays her, 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 her um, eggs. Huh, that took a while. <laughs> who laid her eggs in a beautifully crafted nest and there's, 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 there's obviously the, the framing of the nest, and then there are other uh, feathers and leaves and twigs, and it's gorgeous, and the, the eggs are neatly nestled, and she creates great affection for them. The eggs crack open, the little eaglets are born. And the mother will swoop down and pick up all the fine tunings of, 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 of snakes and rabbits and stuff, whatever eagles eat, and she swoops up and brings it down, and the little eaglets are all bright-eyed and chirping away. My mother loves us. Look at her, probably an Italian mother. I think it's just an Italian eagle, I'm sure. But one day the mother gets a look on the mother's face, and the eaglet looks at the mother and looks at the other eaglet and says, I don't know what that look is. I've never seen that look before. It's like a really mean look with love. And the mother comes and starts pulling out the feathers. And the eaglets are a little uncomfortable with it, saying, well, what's going down here? Maybe it's the mafia Italian mother eagle. I don't know. I'm not saying. I'm not sure. <laughs> and she still swoops down and brings up food. And then she pulls out a few more twigs and grass and other things. And it starts getting more and more uncomfortable. But comes the day where the mother rises up and spreads her wings across the nest, back up against the hillside, and begins to push these little eaglets towards the edge, and they stand on tippy toes, and below them is a crevice, hundreds and hundreds of feet of destruction. And they turn to each other and say, what has happened to mama? She got crazy. 
<laughs> and she nudges and nudges and pushes them. And as they career down to their demise, she hovers and she hovers. And then she catches the winds of the, of, uh, that, that spiral up in the mountainside. And she comes underneath them and picks them up and takes them back to the nest. And say, what was that? What was that? What was that? And the next day she does the same. And this time the fear and trauma of it has the little wings doing this, doing this. And there's no change in the cataclysmic moment until she comes underneath them and lifts them up and takes them back and does it over and over again until one day they too catch the currents and swoop their way up because eagles were created to fly. Folks, you and I were created for mission. It's not convenient. My son played in the State Cup Championships today and I was in Australia it's not convenient. But we learn to fly by the currents from on high because that's what we were designed to do. This is the nest. This is what happens when Tony and the team come and feed you morsels and you eat and you're so happy and this is so comfortable. And one day the pulpit turns from a place of love to a, to a place of offense. And you turn to the other and say, did you hear what he said? Could you believe he said it? And the old eaglet next to you says, yeah, we had it last season too, you know. <laughs> it is imperative for us to understand the mission of God in every one of our lives. If I had time, and you can do this, you can go and read this at home. When we begin in the Genesis story, and I'll just highlight three doors that every one of us have to go through in being readied for mission, as taken from the life of Joseph. Very quickly, the first one is this. I shared some of these with the men yesterday. You can bring the two talks together and get a broader story. The first is this, the father factor. This is a church where fathering is spoken of and spoken of well, I believe. This is a safe place where you can come and encounter fathering when you yourself have not experienced that. But I don't want to speak about an absent father or an abusive father today. I want to speak briefly about an overindulging father. And an overindulging father is as damaging and destructive as an absent or abusive dad. Please hear me. One of the areas where Meryl and I, and you know this, seem to have most healing is for people who have barren wombs. They can't become pregnant. It could be the wife's fault. It could be the husband. It could be no fault. It's just, it just is. But what's interesting to me, around the world, I go and people say, oh, can you remember the last time you prayed for so-and-so? Man, they're pregnant. They have a baby. They sometimes send us a picture. And, we, like, and then I go back to that church three months later. How's so-and-so? Oh, we haven't seen them. Oh, no, we haven't seen them. Oh, really? Oh, no, you know, baby sleeps at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Pfft, can't bring them out. The other baby's there. So let me just get this right. God blesses you with isolation. God blesses you to alienate you from community. Is that what God had in mind? Or was God filling your womb so that you as a community can encounter the glory and the wonder of a mysterious God who heals barren wombs? Is that what God had in mind? Oh, no, I can't come to the prayer meeting. Ah, this is not judgment. This is not judgment. It's parents who overreact to absence and abuse and now overindulge. 
Oh, no, no, we don't come to the prayer meeting, Tony. I'm sorry. We, we, you know, it's late. Our kids go to bed at 7 o'clock. And that's, what do you think, sir, is more important for your kid? A comfortable seat or and a papoose hearing you or the missus worship? Even if it's bullfrogs and butterflies, what do you think is most comforting for them? The fan going quietly so they can't hear the cars go, comfortable sheets and pillow, where what they are receiving every single night is, I am the center of the universe, don't mess with me, don't mess with my routine. The greatest gift a dad and a mom can give their child, as I said this last time, I'll say it again, is that my mom and dad love Jesus more than they love me. Joseph's dad overindulged him. He gave him a coat of many colors. He said, you're different, boy. You're not like all the other boys. You know, I really love you. I mean, I love them, but I really love you. You know, when all the other boys are out caring for the sheep, why don't you hang out here and you and I can just bond a little bit? He absolutely overindulged his boy. And the problem is when we never say no to our kids, it is God who has to say no to us. And so people come to faith expecting a pandering, overindulgent God who is there at my beck and service, and they cram in buildings, which picture God to be the valet ready at their service, where they throw up lists of things. If you want this, you ask God. You want what? You want a husband? Come on, tell God what kind of husband you want. You want a six foot one with dark hair, with ripped pecs, who knows how to cook, great lover, brings in the bucks. You tell God what you want. Sir, Where is that in the text? I'll tell you what the text says. Isaac says, find me a wife of God's choosing and I will marry her and I will love her and I will care for her and I will bring her into the fullness of what she has. That, sir, is the assignment of Scripture. When we understand As fathers and mothers, and it is hard, and I told you the story about my daughter this morning, about saying no to what was really my pride, and yes to her God assignment. It's when we understand, dear friends, that fathers, and that's the analogy, and mothers are not there to create excessive indulgence. I'm sorry, I just looked at the time. I've gone over time already. Yeah. But I, I just think, I just think, <laughs> I was in Queensland last week. A woman walks up to me, she says, I teach at a preschool. And she said, we're not allowed to say no to the kids. We are not allowed to say no, even the little place where you ride your tricycles or whatever. She said, it doesn't have a stop sign, it has the sign, but no stop in. And I will get fired if I say no or stop to the kids. So just let me get this straight. So a 14-year-old boy walks to a 14-year-old girl and says, I want to have sex with you because his whole life long, no one has said no to him. So she says no. He says, to heck with you, little chicky. He rapes her, and then we all throw up our arms in despair, but a boy who's been overindulged does not know how to respect a woman. For us to be on mission assignment that God has authored. It means that you and I as dads and mom need to be the conduit through which our kids discover the wonder and mystery of true wisdom. And true wisdom is the ability to say yes or no based on what it will be. Now, can I touch on one more thing and I'll move on? Sir, please don't be Mr. Nice Guy. Please. The missus is the one who says no and you, you and the kids roll your eyes, the old witch. 
But dad, don't worry, son. We'll sort out later. Yeah, dear, there she goes again, the old witch always whining, you know. Hey, 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 hey. She's the daughter of the king. She has been gifted by God to nurture your children, sir. She has been set up by God to model love, affection, partnership, and healthy mission. Don't you dare dishonor her in front of the kids. Don't you dare to be Mr. Nice Guy, to be the one that the kids want to hang out with. I wouldn't be with dad, but I want to be with mom. And we drive her to the fringes of the family where she sits in the corner of the dining room table, and we, the cool ones, hang out together. We make God's job so hard because we never say no, he has to. I think God shook his head as he watched Jacob with his boy and he said, oh, oh, oh. I'm going to have to teach him to be a servant. I'm going to have to teach him isolation. I'm going to have to teach him false accusation. I'm going to have to teach him everything his father never taught him. And it's going to be 13 years of hell. Overindulgence is as devastating as abuse and absence. Am I done or have I got another couple of minutes? Be honest. Just quickly. Thank you. Thank you for being so gracious. I'm so sorry I took so long. Ah. In keeping with that, how can I just bring the... Okay. In keeping with that, dream management. Isn't it amazing that when you take Psalm 105 and you marry it to the Genesis story of Joseph, Joseph has a dream. Please hear me. Because some of you are living with broken hearts because the prophetic word you've given hasn't happened the way you thought. Joseph gets a dream. He doesn't marinate in the dream. He doesn't filter the dreams through knowledge and partnership and friendship and prayers. He calls the family and says, hey, guys, let me just tell you something. My dad says I'm the best ever. My dad's lied to me. My dad has basically separated me, given me the fancy coat. I'm the center of my universe. You guys all spin around me. We've settled that, haven't we? Like, now that we've settled that, let me tell you what this dream means. He says this dream is you're all going to come and bow down to me. What has his dad given him as a gift? The way you handle prophecy is with narcissism. You are the center of the story. But when we read the Psalm 105 account, he's not the center of the story. He's going to spend his life a servant. We have to be very, very gentle with our prophecy management. Because we rarely know what it looks like up front. We generally understand it looking back. It's the fuel in our engine that keeps us moving forward, but it's rarely the ultimate picture that lies before us. Can I just speak to maybe the 10 or 20 of you who are wrestling right now with a sense of vulnerability? If the truth be known, you pull Tony or Kath or Paul or someone aside and say, listen, man, I just got to talk to you, dude. I am brokenhearted. I had a prophetic word 20 years ago. I thought it looked like this. Where am I now? I'm in a dungeon. I'm in darkness. It's a really good thing to do to reprocess. Because the door to mission has to come through prophecy management. How do you handle the dream? So God says, I better give it to him again because he didn't get it the first time. He reaches the same conclusion and God shakes his head and says, all right, here we begin. 
let the story begin. Lastly, and I'm sorry we're rushing. Every one of us will go through the door of the freedom and forgiveness. Every one of us. Please don't be sentimental about church. Please don't think church is just a feel-good thing and, and this is the coolest thing ever. And then one day when you open your eyes, they're made up of ordinary people just like you and me who do unkind things. I would love to stand up here before you this, this evening and say, I've never hurt the church. In my heart, I never have. In my prayers, I never have. In my words, many times. Climbed out of the pulpit when I was a young preacher. Preaching was going bad. I ran out of ideas, and I just stepped into my charisma. I just stepped into Chris, the funny guy. And I was actually quite impressed with me. I was. I climbed out of that pulpit. Hey, Chris, great word, because people are about as undiscerning as I was. Slapping back, great message, bro. Come on, give it to us. I mean, I'm boxing. I get into the car. I get into the car, and I'm expecting Meryl to rave. Oh, my man. Oh, you know. She says nothing. She looks out the window, and I'm like, where was this chick today? She's really got to deal with the sin in her life because that was a great word. That was a great word. And I get home and I'm agitated. Something's not right. And I go and sit by. I said, Lord, what's all that about? He said, son, don't you ever treat my girl like that again. It's not for the display of your charisma. It's for the dispensing of my charismata. It was all about you today, wasn't it? The road through to mission has to come through the right, writing the father door. It has to come through the sense of dream management, but it also has to come through the door of forgiveness. My time is over up. So I'm not going to tell you any more stories, but I want to display something to you. Dan McGaw, are you here? Please come up here, buddy. I was in Canberra. Uh, this past week for a couple of days. And um, God began to put something into my heart and I kind of wasn't too happy with the idea. Wasn't quite sure what to do with it. Um, this is a jacket my daughter bought me. It's one of my favorite jackets. More because Dana bought it for me. Um, and whatever Dana buys invariably has a prophetic component to it and it has a, a, a sense of... Um, Dad, I think this is what God's doing. So I'm staying in their home, and God says to me, give Dan your jacket. So I rebuke the devil. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm going to wait. Because if it's just me having a really kind of travel, uh, whatever time, jet lag thing, then it'll go away. But I watched him this morning in worship, and I felt God said, but I told you. See, God takes Joseph through a number of jacket-changing moments. He says, I've got to take the jacket off you that your father put on you. I've got to take it off you, boy. And he says, I've got to take the jacket off you that your brothers put on you. The jacket, they enslaved him. Let's kill the dreamer. Let's take it off. Then God had to take the jacket of Potiphar off him. 
influence, culture, but not the right one. Then God had to take the jacket of the prisoner off him. And ultimately, and it's interesting, when he stands before Pharaoh, it says he shaved and changed his clothes, but it wasn't the ultimate jacket. The mission God had in mind for the 17-year-old spoiled son of a rich farmer was not a coat of many colors. It wasn't what his brothers put on him or took from him. It wasn't what Potiphar had in mind for him, the leader that he grew up in. Ultimately, what God had prepared him for was to instruct the princes. It was to prepare the elders. It was to be a prophetic administrator to see the future and shape what the future had to look like. And as I was sitting in worship tonight, and I brought this jacket purposefully, quite honestly hoping I didn't have to give it away. But I felt like God wanted a visual aid for every one of you. Because I believe some of you are sitting with the coat that someone else gave you, and that's not your mission. What your dad gave you, that's not your mission. What your brother said about you is not your mission. Is what Potiphar, the leader that you had that gave you some standing and stature, was not your mission. What you had in prison was not your mission. Because it said they locked his neck, its authority, and they shackled his feet. That's your message. How lovely are the feet of them, good news. They took your message and they took your authority and they kept it to themselves. But there came a day when God put the right jacket on. And then Joseph stepped fully into his mission. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 